Welcome to the Pitt Rivers Museum at the University of Oxford. This is Pod Academy, and I'm Joe Barrett. We're here for a series looking at the ethnographic sound archive here at the museum. This episode is going to look in some detail at the Real to Real project and the work being done to make the most of an underappreciated resource. Also, we'll hear about how sound can contribute to the overall museum experience. Noel Lobley is going to be an ever-present voice in this series as he guides us through several aspects of his work in ethnomusicology and sound archiving. My name's uh, Noel Lobley and I work here at the Pitt Rivers Museum as the ethnomusicologist. I deal with a lot of the music and sound collections and for the last 18 months or so uh, a lot of my time has been devoted to developing the sound archive, pulling it out of storage, getting it um, digitised, heard and available and then sort of programming events uh, to engage um, different audiences with um, the the sound collections that we have here. You'll also hear from Sarah Winkler-Reed an anthropologist from the University of Bristol who joined Noel and I in Oxford. For those of you who don't know about the museum, here's Noel to tell us a bit about his place of work. The Pitras Museum is the University of Oxford's Museum of Anthropology and World Archaeology. It's got uh, wonderful ethnographic galleries that are absolutely crammed, uh, almost to bursting, with uh, um, hundreds of thousands of objects from thousands and thousands of different cultures from all over the world, um, some prehistoric, some much more modern. It was established by General Augustus Lane Henry Fox Pitt Rivers, um, who donated his collection here and has been curated here since, I'll have to check the date, but something like 1887, I really should know that. Henry Balfour was the first curator here and he was a a polymath. He was interested in absolutely everything, well ahead of his time, I think, uh, on on many things. He was interested in decorative art. He was interested in music and sound a lot as well. Um, And so that, in many ways, that that kick-started the collecting of sound here, which has been happening for over 100 years. There are big um, photography collections here, big manuscript collections, obviously massive object collections, which you've just seen out in the galleries. What you see out there... It's very much used as research and teaching resources and also things to just engage the general public, so children, schools. It's a very family-friendly museum. It routinely wins awards for being very accessible to children. It's got, we've got our own education department here. It's a, real, it's, it's a very varied and, and diverse, but it is part of Oxford University. Noel's here to talk to us about the Real to Real project, which is the focus of this episode. And I asked him to sum up the project in one sentence. Real to Real, giving the Pitt Rivers Museum's sound collections a voice. Real to Real was a project designed to digitise, catalogue and make available online in the museum gallery spaces and further afield um, all of our unique ethnographic field collections. That side of the project actually finished in March this year when we, when we launched the website. It was the first concerted attempt to pull the hundred years of sound collecting that we have here. Um, it, the earliest ethnographic recordings go back to 1912 as far as we know. The first concerted attempt to bring them all out of storage, get them all digitised and get them out there so as they could get heard and attract further research projects, further events and further interest. Why wasn't the recordings being used prior to this? It's it's actually a practical answer. Um, A sound archive can exist in various states and actually for a long time these recordings were were simply in storage and in many of the cases we didn't even have the means of playing them so our formats here go back to wax cylinders copper matrices steel wire reel-to-reel audio cassette and dat 
and obviously increasingly now, anything that's collected now is likely to be straight to SD card. We couldn't play wax cylinders, we couldn't play steel wire, we couldn't play reel-to-reels, we just didn't have um, the technology, we didn't have the equipment, so it all has to be outsourced. And if you've got the money, you, um, engineers at the British Library or elsewhere can salvage sound from anywhere absolutely anywhere um it can be taken off of old pieces of tin foil or something you know um we didn't have the equipment to do that um all the infrastructure to do it we just had a massive recordings that were were waiting to be processed if you like so a few of them were circulate a few did circulate you know there'd be requests but the typical request to engage with the sound archive would be i'm sorry it's simply not available at the moment basically the recordings have been built up amassed that's quite typical of sound archives our sound collections here came in as part of other collections. So Evans Pritchard Cylinders came in with his, his objects, his photographs and everything, and the sound just ended up being put aside. And everything else was because material anthropology was popular at the time, so let's look at objects, whereas the anthropology of sound was non-existent. As we wrote in the application, the sound collections became the orphan collections. They became these orphans, and, and, and yet they are so integral to, to everything else that's going on, both in terms of collecting but also the cultures from where they came from. We've really got to reintegrate them back in there. It's actually a practical answer, I think, in some way. So that, that's a very definite problem you had to overcome, like kind of practically getting all this stuff together. But there, was there anything else that you struggled with that was a challenge from maybe a organisational point of view or how you're dealing with this data and thinking how to make sense of it? From our perspective here, um, there, there's not really a precedent for curating sound. Um, so I knew what was both the challenge and exciting about it was that we could we could basically be original about it. You know, um, if, if there'd been 20 years of sound curation, then obviously you, you're going to be following that mould. Obviously we're influenced by the curatorial models that already apply here for objects and sound oh, objects and images sorry um, but sound is something very very different we've, we've catalogued everything using the internal cataloging systems but um, we've had to develop newer ways of, of dealing with that so little things like so you can stream all the sound files through the database you know so as you've got all the information there and you can hear what it is sound has to be done with, dealt with in real time if not more, there's no shortcut for it. Um, I had to go through all 1,000 hours of Luis Sano's recordings. It's 1,500 hours now, another 500 hours turned up during the project. I go through it in what's well, more than real time, isn't it? You know, and uh, that's a huge um, challenge for time. You know, there's, there's no shortcut for dealing with sound. Uh, if you don't hear it, you don't know what's in it. Do you just literally sit there listening to it, or are you doing other things at the same time? Uh, a bit of both. The, the, um, it's, 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 it took years. Obviously, like um, uh, to digitise all of that collection took the best part of a year. Louis Sano's made a tape, a 45-minute tape or a two-hour DAT. It might have 30 events in it, and no one is going to pick their way through that other than a very patient researcher. So I knew that the whole thing needed to be edited. And uh, so I went through it, sometimes dedicated headphones on, just making observations, like intelligent observations about what's in that collection, not always knowing because I didn't make those recordings. And I, I'm learning more and more about the culture, but um, they're not my recordings. So, but I can make certain, uh, some, uh, certain guesses based on my training. But a lot of the time, yeah, I mean, some of the ceremonies, they go on for two hours. So, I mean, I had them on at home a lot. Um, my, I have a three-year-old son, and I think he's heard more Bayaka music probably than anyone on the planet um, because it's, it's in our flat all the time. Chris Morton, my, my colleague here, said, uh, you do know you're the only person in the entire world that's ever going to hear that whole collection, to which I responded twice. <laughs> and um, yeah, it, yeah. Sometimes it's very close attention. Sometimes you can let it go past you while doing other things. 
cataloging, researching, um, whatever. Sometimes you have to do nothing but listen to that and make observations. What percentage of what's available did you think you'd get out there and what are your plans for the collection moving forward? It was originally a full-time project for a year, but it ended up running for, I think it was 15 months. When we wrote the funding application, um, I estimated that we could get all of our ethnographic recordings catalogued and digitised but we couldn't get it all online we thought we can only really get introductory playlists available to to show people what's in those collections um and then we're now at a new stage of the sound project where it's 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 basically building on everything that we did um it could all be put online it's it's not going to be at the moment but it could potentially all be put online at some unspecified point in the future we have a premium soundcloud account um, I negotiated with SoundCloud and told them what we were doing, who we were, and said, um, so, you know, obviously, if you have a normal SoundCloud account, you can upload, I think it's two hours or two gigs. Um, but a premium account is quite expensive because of the bandwidth involved, you know. But premium accounts are unlimited. So we could conceivably put all 1,500 hours of Sarno's collection up there on SoundCloud as some, you know, if you look at the London Sound Survey or other big accounts, there's lots of sound up there. The implications of that, then, is that you could end up getting a a lot of requests, yeah. you know, and so there has to be curatorial structure in place to enable that. So it's a potential outcome. It's not one that was designed to be delivered at this stage. And, you know, there's also there's questionable value of hours and hours and hours and hours of this material for people to access without any kind of curatorial reference from you. I mean, you want somebody to look through it and pick out what's important and yeah, yeah. explain that, don't you? I think so, yeah. It's the, I mean, the, the one thing I really like about SoundCloud, I knew from the day off, I knew I wanted SoundCloud as the platform for, um, um, for our delivery. You know, it looks good. It's, it's very, very easy to use. And it puts you alongside unexpected audiences because it's basically used for commercial music. It's not, when, I, when, I wrote, when I was in touch with them and said, this is what we're doing, this is what we want to do... Um, can we have a free premium account and we'll obviously credit you as a, you know, as, as, as a collaborator and things. And Ben Fawkes at SoundCloud wrote back instantly and said, in short, of course, we're really interested in how SoundCloud can be used for ethnographic sound archiving. And, and that enabled us to then just unlimited upload. But yeah, putting everything up in an undiscriminating way, a non-discriminating way is is not the right thing to do. I could, it would be wrong to just put a 1,000 hours of Lewis Sarno's material up there. What's, what's better is for me to put slowly put playlists up at the moment um, as we go along. For it to go up in a sort of unnavigable ways, that's not really the way to curate sound, I don't think. There's, there's a real advantage. I love the fact that someone listening to a Rihanna tune might suddenly stumble across uh, uh, one of our tunes from Columbia or something like this and, and might want to respond to that in some way. But if you want more information, it has to be in there. All the links go from SoundCloud back to our website and things like this, so you can navigate through the information you want. What you can't do at the moment is get access to the internal catalogue, but that could be put online in due course. There, all the photograph collections... Um, have all been digitised and they're all available online so any image you're interested in from here um, you can pull up the web page and, and pull off a JPEG. There's no reason why that couldn't be done with sound. Could you talk a little bit about how sound is incorporated in museums in a, in a context that people might understand? They come and visit the museum for the afternoon how they might encounter recorded sound in that environment? Putting it back out in the galleries is, is obviously a, a technical challenge, both in the technicals, technicalities of sound delivery, but luckily we work with a lot of professional sound engineers, so that's always solvable. But in terms of how it impacts on the atmosphere and what people want from a museum, so there's, the delivery of it is also a challenge, I think. I mean, the, the, the standard, I mean, there are different ways of, um, 
different ways of designing and engineering this, obviously. There's the obvious audio guide, you know, where people come in and uh, and listen to selected things and, and you know, maybe... It tells, on the, uh, it tells or illustrates something related to the cases that they can hear. So the instruments that you see outside in the Pitrose Museum, there are sound samples for some of them. That's quite a traditional way of doing it within museums, and I, I don't think it's, um, it's, it's, it's slightly dated now in, in terms of how people actually want to experience sound. It's not a huge area um, in terms of museums. I mean, they're traditionally thought of as being quiet reflective places where you know uh, and you know and then that's how some people want them and that's how some curators want them as well we put together a sounding museums network last year as part of real to real where we brought some really interesting sound curators together people like soundfield soundfield as for my knowledge is the only gallery that's devoted to sound because most galleries are obviously not devoted to sound uh, and they have installations and they have ethnographers come in and do presentations and things like that Intermittent events, public events, performance, things like this. So the Foundling Museum have a folk at the museum. Um, musicians come in and perform, and quite often in response to the museum. Um, so our composing residency here, Nathaniel Mann, recently went and did a set for them, and he supported Martin Carthy, you know, the guitarist Martin Carthy. And Nathaniel had, had written pieces related to children and, and, and things that were related to the museums, and they'd found an old um, broadside related to the museum, and he set a new song to the broadside they get you know so artist creative artists coming in and 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 doing the stuff with sound within the galleries yeah i mean you can get more immersive installations and things like this it it's in most museums it's not something that most people want all of the time they they, they don't necessarily want a soundscape that, that dominates or something like this the soundscape in some ways is the ambient soundscape of of engagement and, and, and things like this. We, we also put together a workshop called Delivering Ethnographic Sound where we invited a lot of top-level sound engineers, um, some anthropologists, some other sound curators, some designers, and said, OK, this is the archive we've got here. There's the gallery. What would you do? And there were people that were interested in doing these multi-layered maps of things that are triggered as you move through space, you know, done through, whether it be through smartphones or QR codes, and you can pick and design your own pathway through um, the gallery. So you've got, everyone has got their own soundscape. And when, how you experience that, whether you, we had um, engineers that were interested in delivering the sound, the Luisano sound back in the Central African Republic. They, they can design that from, we can, from here back to there. It's, 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 it's infrastructure and cost. Um, and the ethics of whether that's the right thing to do so these are all possibilities and we've been thinking through some of these uh, but uh, it was at this level we got to um, the design phase if you like and with Nathaniel our composer in residence we think through a lot how to deliver sound out there because if you come back to the Pitt Rivers um, we were just in there a little earlier this morning it's not performance space there isn't a stage out there we were up on the claw our musicians are normally up on the claw balcony or in the galleries on wireless mics but it's an amazing listening space it's um, both myself and Nathaniel who've played and performed in lots of different venues um, in lots of different places both agree that a gallery like that the Peter is is an amazing listening space something to do with the the, 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 the many different distractions that are in there and the many different pathways that are in there, the, the, um, the fact that nothing dominates, even the totem pole doesn't dominate after a while, and it changes your perception of what you're listening to. It's, it's a very, very unusual listening space. You, that museum is all about discovery. Just discover something around the corner, and we've been thinking through how we integrate sound within that. So as you actually just discover the sound rather than, here you go, here's a band, or here you go, here's a, here's a record. You know, how does sound become part of that discovery experience? So there are, there are lots of different innovative ways it can be done. Through Some of it is simple technology, some of it is quite complicated technology. 
twice a year um, we have these um, big um, Night of the Museum events, which are cross-museum, which increasingly, for the last handful of years, here at the Pit Rivers, we've worked sound into that as part of the experience. And basically what happens is the, the lights are turned off, so those ethnographic galleries out there, which were already quite dark and, and hidden, um, become very dark. visitors get given a torch to explore and as they get given you get, get you, you get given a torch and you walk in to the galleries that are bathed in sound and the sound is from our collections so it's not just some afrobeat and the one in november last year which is november the 23rd um, myself and nathaniel mann our composing residents um, we designed a four-hour soundscape of bayaka music all recorded by lewis sano bayaka music from the, the rainforest of the central african republic and also in um, northern congo designed to really turn those galleries into a rainforest environment projections on the ceiling from um, rainforest images that lewis has taken things like this Um, and we were thinking through how do you actually integrate that within the galleries and the images and get people to really respond to that music because Bayaka music is quite often participatory it's not, you know, it's in, in some of these ceremonies everybody joins in there's a place for the young child learning as well as the, the master singer and we thought through um, what, how we wanted people to experience that music we didn't want to be too didactic about it and start telling them about polyrhythms and polymedia and all the stuff that bores most people you know, we wanted them to experience it and um, so, yeah, we bathed the galleries in this sound and um, we wanted to link images and sound. So um, we came up with this idea. You see these examples of, like, you know, um, sound waves, like you know, a close-up of a drum skin that you can trace how the sound is, is, is designed in sand or something like this, you know. There's lo- and Nathaniel ended up designing this visualiser where we, had, we, sh- we projected images from the Lewis Sano collection, images of rainforest life and social issues, the hunting pathways, things like that, which were revealed behind a sound wave. And the sound wave, so the sound wave that you could see going across the screen projected into the darkened galleries was the sound wave of the music that was being played which revealed the image behind it. The sound wave was also driven by sensitive internal microphones, so anyone suddenly noticed if they clapped or did something, it, was, it registered on the sound wave. So if you did that or, or anything like this, you began to affect the sound wave and therefore you could reveal more or less of the image and as soon as people realised this they began to join in with the music and people began to join in with the music and, and made that small move from passive to active, I think streamed it uh, live so as you could look in have a portal on the web to look into the because these were oversubscribed these events like nearly 4,000 people came in between ourselves and next door across the night big queues waiting to get it's all free uh, really as a test but basically because we wanted it watched back in the Central African Republic and we told Louis Sano what we were doing and when I got back into work on the Monday Louis Sano and some of his Bayaka friends whose music this is and some of them who were performing in the, the sounds that we had in the galleries walked through an hour through the rainforest from Yandumbe where they live to get to Bayanga, which is the nearest small town. There's a WWF office there that has a satellite phone, uh, and they all gathered around the satellite phone and looked in and watched their music being curated here. We're immensely proud, identified certain songs that they could hear and that they wanted copies of, and things like, and got an idea of what how their collection is being used here. And you know, a long term, that that relationship really interests me. That's what I see as the much longer term um, stage of my own research on the Sana collection. But part of my own contention is that um, you can't assume that it's going to be valuable to the communities who made it because they might not care. You know, they might have moved on. They might not. Or if it's 100 years ago, they might not know much about it. You know, if it's skipped three generations or two generations. 
But when there is a pathway and when there is a connection back where it came from, it tends to be quite powerful. And it tends to complete things in a way that the rest of us can't. You know, this is what struck me when I was in the Eastern Cape of South Africa. We know what German academics think about Hulsa recordings. We didn't know what Hulsa musicians thought about these recordings. And in a way, it's their culture, it's their music. They can, surely they know something that we don't about these things. And and, uh, I think that's an interesting model for... Um, how you can use sound in, in different ways. What's a way that people who are listening to this podcast can access the audio collections that we've been talking about? Sure. The, um, there's, there's several ways to do it. Um, we obviously have the project website, um, which is called Real to Real. Um, the link will, will be available um, via the webpage, at which that gives a nice overview of the sound collections here, 14 main um, ethnographic collections, and there are generous playlists from each collection. Uh, that's really a, a general introduction. It's not overly academic. Um, it's designed to be uh, attract general audiences, you know, researchers, but also schools and, and, and general interest and we have uh, a lot of our sounds uploaded onto SoundCloud and beyond the playlists that are available. That's the obvious way to keep an eye on the project blog which um, deals more um, generally with sound at the museum so beyond the Real to Real and the ethnographic collections because the Real to Real project was just about the ethnographic um, field collections here. We also have, we have a big sound archive still in storage which includes commercial recordings and recordings made by UNESCO, um, other recordings that were donated, a big collection of um, African recordings donated by the International Library of African Music. We haven't dealt with those at the moment. Those are in storage, so um, Real to Real is just the, is the ethnographic collections. That's what we wanted to, to make available. Um, and the series of public events um, that we arranged that really are designed to integrate sound back into the galleries. Part of the idea of that is to move people towards the idea of sound as experience rather than just sound as something that we listen to in a slightly um, detached way. So, I mean, we consider any request for people that want them to engage with our sound archive um, and uh, it will be considered on a case-by-case basis. So I think there's, there's lots of different ways that you can you can access these recordings um, and that they will, you know, um, as other people come in with different ideas, it tends to go in different directions. So the research um, access is one thing, you know, like research appointments. Um, we have researchers that come in uh, and book research appointments and just want to sit and listen to them all. Probably the, the obvious opening point is the SoundCloud account or the website and then perhaps there's other ways to experience it as well. You've been listening to Noel Lobley at the Pitt Rivers Museum talking to us about the Real to Real project. There's links to the project blog and SoundCloud pages at podacademy.org, where you can also access the other podcasts in this series, as well as many others covering the full range of academic research.